All right, Exodus 12, if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter 12. We're going to jump into Exodus chapter 12 this evening, which is a very important chapter of the Scripture for a variety of reasons. We, it'll take us uh, several weeks probably to work through these next two chapters And we're looking at these three big ideas. This is kind of Exodus chapters 12 and 13, uh, you know, big picture. We're going to see how the Passover is instituted in verses 1 to 20 of chapter 12. We're going to get into that this evening. I don't know if we'll cover all of that, but we'll see what kind of progress we can make. Um, We're going to look at the, the Passover being instituted. That is, God lays out through Moses what... Uh, how it is to be kept and commemorated. But then we'll see Passover implemented in chapter 12, verse 21, to the end, uh, well, not quite, almost the end of the chapter, verse 42. And that's the actual event of the slaughter of the firstborn, the, right, the, the angel of death going throughout the land of Egypt, then the actual exodus that occurs. And we'll see that, of course, a uh, really important you know, pinnacle passage in the history of Israel in, uh, of course, biblical revelation. But then we'll see the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, Passover regulated. In other words, there are more laws that are introduced or rehearsed that are regulated on who can participate in Passover, how Passover is to be commemorated, etc. And the whole point is that we're going to spend a couple of chapters here talking about this very important event. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but the Bible is economic in the sense that it it cannot, uh, does not record all of human history, uh, nor all the great deeds of God. John, the apostle, put it this way, that if we wrote all the books, right, if we talked of every word and deed of Jesus Christ, he says, then even the world could not contain the books that ought be written, right? So the Bible is by no means exhaustive, telling us everything about human history or even redemptive history for that matter, but it does give us all that pertains to life and godliness, as Peter put it. But nonetheless, because the Bible is not exhaustive, it must by nature be selective. And so it's going to emphasize certain things in certain ways for certain reasons. But when you get to a, a chunk like this where we, it, the narrative basically comes to a standstill, for the first part of chapter 12, and then the last part of chapter 12 uh, into chapter 13, uh, again, the narrative is going to, the actual event of the 10th plague and the Passover event is going to be recorded in, you know, the middle portion there of of Exodus chapter 12, but it is framed on both sides by uh, law, regulation. What, in other words, the narrative comes to a standstill and the text is, is, emphasizing with extra ink, even in some cases redundant ink. It's going to tell us the same thing twice. The whole point is it's emphatic, right? It's slowing us down, putting an exclamation point upon the importance of this event, not only in the history of Israel, but then, of course, how they are to uh, commemorate this later throughout history in continually year by year keeping the Passover. And so this is a very important section of the scripture for that. Uh, for those various reasons, and just by that basic observation, we see that. So our focus tonight, and again, I don't know if we'll make it through all of the first 20 verses of the chapter, but we're going to look at that first point, Passover instituted. And we're going to look at these four big ideas that are emphasized uh, in, this, in this text. We're going to see first the timing of the Passover, <clears throat> the elements of the Passover, the purpose of the Passover, 
And then that's really kind of the the key thrust of those uh, 20 verses. And then we'll consider, if time will allow, that final point, the history of the Passover, which is really stepping back and looking from here forward throughout the rest of biblical history, uh, the history of, of the Passover. In other words, how well did Israel keep or not keep these regulations that are here laid down in chapter you know 12 verses 1 to 20 all right so we have a, a again a, a lot of ground to cover but we'll we'll just take it uh, chunk by chunk and and let me know you know breaking at any point make comments etc ask questions because uh, the whole point is is learning and growing together all right so if you got your bible let's begin by reading our text exodus chapter 12 verse 1 let's make our way down to verse 20 and then we'll look at those four big ideas all right so first Uh, Let's read the text. Verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak you unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood of the uh, take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roasted with fire, his head with his legs and with the pertinence or the entrails thereof. Verse 10. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning you shall eat or uh, you shall burn with fire, rather. Verse 11, Thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, will I execute judgment. I am Yahweh, or I am the Lord. Verse 13, And the blood shall be to you for a token, Upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the term Passover. Right? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day shall you put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 16. And in the first day, there shall be a holy convocation, a gathering together, an assembly. It says, and in the seventh day, there uh, shall be a holy convocation, convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may, that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies, the hosts, Uh, of Israel, your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month, at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses, for whosoever eats that 
which is leavened. Even that soul should be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your habita- habitations. Shall you eat unleavened bread? All right. Now, as we look at, again, there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about in these 20 verses. And so we'll just take it chunk by chunk. But we're going to look at these, generally speaking, these four big ideas uh, and, and try to flesh them out in the next few moments. All right. So first, let's consider together the timing of the Passover. This is highlighted in the first few verses of the chapter. What's fascinating is this is a way that God wants to emphasize the Passover event. He calls this event the beginning of months, he says. This shall be unto you the beginning of months, he says in verse 2. In other words, God is saying, don't really mark this day on the calendar, but rather change the entire calendar to mark this day. The Passover was to be viewed as a new beginning, in other words. God is the one who governs time and history, and he's, the, and he's here exercising his right as Lord to tell Israel to change their calendar in order to commemorate this event. This is going to be a history-altering event for the nation of Israel. So this, again, this idea distinguished Israel. Uh, from here forward, when God says this is now going to be the beginning of months, uh, we'll talk about the the months here in just a second, but God's changing the Hebrew New Year. Now, what's interesting at this is when if Israel were to keep this, and throughout Israeli history, they didn't always do it. Sometimes they did better than others, but nonetheless, if Israel were, were to keep God's commandments here and follow the God-ordained calendar, then this was to really change the way that they operate and really contrast them with the pagan nations around them. Because remember, one of the major functions that God had for the nation of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, right? A holy nation, he'll call them in Exodus chapter 19. And they were to be distinct and different and stand out. And one of the ways that they were to do that is their their calendar year, the way they count time, the way that they particularly, the, the festivals they keep were to distinguish them from the rest uh, of the world, in, in a sense. Now, this, again, is different in that their, their new year, the beginning of the year, was to be in the fall, or in the, uh, in the spring, rather, the, which contrasts Canaanite. The Canaanite new year was in the fall. And this is, again, a very... We won't get lost into the Canaanite stuff because our focus is, is really going to be Passover, but, but the Canaanite new year was a very, you know, a lot of... It was a time of debauchery. Can I put it that way? Right? They, they, they celebrate the, the new year with an entire array uh, of wicked deeds. And so God is, is reversing the Jewish calendar to contrast that. In fact, other texts, if we were to look at Exodus 13, Exodus 23, Exodus 34, uh, Nehemiah, Esther, those are on the screen there. But other texts inform us that the opening month is Abib or Aviv, uh, is how you'd pronounce it in Hebrew. But in the, la- the later Jewish calendar from the Babylonian exile, this month is referred to as Nisan. So the, the month of Nisan or Aviv, it's the same word. Okay, Well, it's the same month. It's two different words referring to the same month. And it, it, the reason is because they, they started changing the names after the Babylonian captivity, but it's referring to the same time period. And so again, their new year, or this month of Nisan, or Aviv, depending on which text you're looking at, and again, when it's post-Babylonian exile, the month is labeled Nisan, which is typically the word that modern Jews will use today, the 14th of Nisan being Passover. 
Um, but that corresponds to our months of March or April, all right, because their calendar doesn't exactly march, you know, match up with ours. So sometimes it's late March or early April, depending on the year. But that's the time period uh, that, again, when uh, think of right, you know, close to our Easter time, right? That's when we're, we're getting close to Passover because that's, uh, of course, the whole idea of the Christ was crucified on Passover, right? And then rises again uh, a few days after that. But nonetheless, so we'll, we'll see both of those ideas uh, or those words, Aviv or Nisan, used to refer to the timing. But again, the fact that God's altering the calendar is meant to emphasize the importance of this event. Now, again, the, the timing of Passover is further specified, not only the month, but there's two particular days of the month that the Passover is to be commemorated. The events of Passover were to unfold on two primary days, the 10th of the month and the 14th of the month. Again, we read it just a moment ago, but on the 10th day of the month, each family was to select a lamb, according to verse 3. Yet, if the family was too small for a lamb, they, they could combine households. In other words, the lamb was to be entirely eaten because whatever you don't eat, you're not allowed to have leftovers later, right? You burn it. Uh, you burn your leftovers. And it was, a, it was a, uh, again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the reason for this is that the entire lamb was to be eaten. There was no such thing as Passover leftovers. This was one way the meal was treated as holy. It was not a common meal. Uh, it was not to be treated as common trash. Or you throw away your leftovers or you save them for later. Or, you know, he says, in fact, it was ceremonially burned, according to verse 10. It was treated as holy, distinct, unique, special. Uh, in fact, later, this is uh, much later, this is New Testament, contemporary to New Testament, Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus describes that a minimum of quorum of 10 participants was required for this ritual during the second temple period. In other words, in order to try and follow that command, that's why they would, they would typically clump together households if they didn't eat, you know, if, to get to at least 10 in order to eat up all the Passover, uh, you know, meal. So again, we, we see this same sort of thing with Jesus and his disciples, right? We have the 12 disciples and Jesus and, you know, at least those, perhaps there's some other that attended, but those we know for sure attended there, uh, the Passover that, you know, right when Jesus was crucified. But nonetheless, they, again, they, they have this quorum to try and eat up all the Passover meal. Now, again, additionally, Passover was designed to have families gather together to eat this communal, communal meal, to fellowship and remember this event, much like our modern Thanksgiving. So in other words, it was a time for families, your family to gather together, but sometimes with other families as well. And it was a, it was a time to, again, commemorate, to talk one with another, to remember and commemorate these events. Do you have a hand up? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what Jesus is, is alluding to in John 6. <clears throat> I remember that, that greatly offended the Jewish audience that, that listened to him. But yeah, absolutely. I think he was, uh, he was making a point that would become clearer later when he, of course, institutes the Last Supper, when he dies and becomes our Passover lamb. Right? And, and Etc. But absolutely. And, that, and remember, this is in a sense, and we'll talk about it more later, but when we as believers participate, and we're more than welcome, and I encourage people to participate in Passover, but 
when Christians participate in the Lord's table, that is a Christian commemoration of Passover, right? In other words, Jesus uses Passover, and he, and we'll talk about it more later, but he, he identifies himself with the elements that are in Passover, and then he commands us to participate in that regularly, right? He says, do this in remembrance of me, all right? Yeah. And since he was the chosen lamb for this occasion, and he presented himself to the people on the 10th day, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And he was killed on the 14th day, just like Passover. Yeah, we'll talk calendars uh, as much as, as you want. There is some debate on that. Um, well, in fact, uh, I think I have it coming up next. Simone. Yeah, it is my, and it is still my opinion. Though, I mean, I have really good friends and honored teachers that disagree with me. So it just pains me. But nonetheless, uh, but let's capitalize quickly on what Simone just pointed out. Notice the two-day interval, the 10th and the 14th. There's a four-day inter, you know, interval in between. And there's the purpose for that, according to our text, is that first there was a selection of the lamb, followed later by the slaying of the lamb. And that period in between was a period of inspection, essentially. Uh, and, and really, the purpose was to make sure, verse 5, that the lamb was to be without blemish, right? And it was not only a period of inspection, but I think uh, it's often pointed out, most commentators point this out, uh, if you've ever performed this, I know a number of families who have, I've got some good friends who have done this, they also see that during this period of uh, having, you know, selecting the lamb, but then inspecting the lamb, there's this period of attachment, as I point out, where the family came to a greater appreciation for the lamb giving up its life. In other words, you're going to live for, with that lamb for four days, and then you're killing that lamb, right? And it's like that, that sort of attachment is actually, it helps you all the more appreciate the sacrifice the lamb is making on your behalf. But nonetheless, this, the, on the 14th day of the first month, the lamb was to be slain, according to verse 6. The blood was then applied to the lintel and doorposts and then, of course, the lamb itself was eaten, according to verse 7. So on the 14th, uh, the lamb was to be slain, it says, between the evenings or uh, in the evening, depending on your translation. And the, this, this timing factor is heavily discussed. Exactly what time is that referring to? Majority consensus, which I think is, is uh, probably right, refers to late afternoon. Or it's, it's sometimes known as, uh, again, between the evenings. Even in modern Israel, they call it that, where it's, it's this in Israel and, and, well, Middle East. So Egypt, it's similar. Uh, you know, Mediterranean right there by the, you know, that uh, side of the Mediterranean. You have this, this exchange, right? The sun is hot, so it's hot during the day. But then you have, you know, this, this air exchange. And then you, you start experiencing a breeze off the Mediterranean. And that is sometimes called, you know, the second evening or between the evenings. In other words, that breeze starts, I'm sorry, is the first evening, and then the sundown would be the second evening. All right, so between the evenings, that's what the Hebrew phrase literally is, is probably referring to that late afternoon, right when the breezes start, right? And then, right, but before sundown, right? You've got a window of a, a couple, three hours there that, uh, you know, is when the lamb was to be slain. And... So, again, that's, that's probably what's referring to here. But, again, this is, uh, it comes back to Simone's point. There's a debate on this because it really depends. And, I mean, I'll try to get lost in it. I'll give you the short version, right? But when I taught through the life of Christ, there's this huge debate, right? What day of the week did Jesus die on? Your traditional 
uh, day is Friday, right? That he died on Friday, rose on Sunday. Um, I'm a Thursday guy, but there are Wednesday guys, and there's even some Tuesday guys, but there's not many of those because that's like I, I don't that doesn't make much sense to me. It's really hard to fit all the events that happen, uh, you know, in the gospel records within just a couple of days and get him crucified on Tuesday. It doesn't fit. So I'm a Thursday guy. Um, I tend to lean that way for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons is uh, this. It, 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 I like the way it works out with this calendar. In other words, Jesus, the triumphal entry would have occurred, and, and the Bible tells us, right, it was, we call it Palm Sunday, right, but it would have occurred on a Sunday. Uh, we get that from John chapter 12, the detail there. It says it happened, uh, you know, six days before Passover, and there's, there's various ways to, you know, we can really get lost in the reckoning, and, and I've given some lectures of that in the past. We can revisit that in, you know, whenever you want, or I mean, we can talk about it more. Um, but I, I like to reconstruct that week, and there's, there's many scholars that lean that way, that the triumphal entry would have happened on the 10th of Nisan. In other words, it would have com- correlated with the same day that the, la- the Passover lambs were being selected and set aside, right? That's when Jesus comes into the city. Um, but then in between that and Passover, you then have a series of, of inspections, right, where we see this idea of, of, right, they were inspecting the lamb. Uh, Jesus is questioned over and over and over again during those days, right? That's really the Matthew 22, right? The various groups come and, and try to find fault with him. They try to trip him up in his speech. They try to make him look bad in front of the crowds. But what happens? Every single time he is, you know, outsmarting them. He's, he's, uh, showing that he is without blemish, he is without spot, he's perfect. And then, of course, he's slain on, uh, because everybody agrees, well, most everybody that I read agrees, that Passover that year happens on Thursday, all right? It's, it's a Thursday Passover. Um, but the question is, did Jesus die that day or the day subsequent, right, on Thursday or on Friday? In other words, there's, there's different debates on that. We could get lost. There's whole volumes, multiple volumes with multiple volumes, right, written to, to debate the various points. But that's my persuasion is that he came, you know, he comes in on Sunday. He's, he's uh, crucified on Thursday, which, and he's dying the same time that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. Um, and that's a very possible timing reconstruction, though it's, it, it is debatable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the idea there is that the entire congregation, all of Israel, was to make sure, because remember, this is an event that happens in your home, right? And later in Second Temple Judaism, they do, you know, standardize it and bring it to the temple to slay, but it wasn't necessary according to the standard, you know, the, the standard set by the law. So you didn't necessarily have to kill your lamb at the, the temple, though many did. Um, but the point is, when you killed it, it was to be standardized. That all you know, all the the nation, all the families that were participating in the nation had to slay the lamb at the same time or within that window. Yep. And and again, 
uh, I just like the reconstruction because it, the the gospel records give us the hours that Jesus hangs on the cross. Do you remember that? And and according to the gospel records, he dies about three in the afternoon, which is right at the beginning of this period of between the evenings, because it's right around then that the the breezes start, and then you've got a few hours till sundown. That's the time between the evenings. All right, and in other words, it fits really well according to my reckoning. Though it, you know, obviously debatable, but but I, I like that, so I still stand by it, Simone. Just just if you were wondering. But, man, I had a prof, uh, one of my favorite profs. He disagrees with me, and he just about had me talked out of it. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to be stubborn. I'm going to hold to my Thursday. Yeah. Well, also, how do you account for, on, if he died on Friday, how do you account for three days and three nights? And yeah, so the way they do that, um, for what it's worth, is they, they, I forget the name of the rabbi, but there's a rabbi that wrote uh, in that time period, and he makes a comment about how in Jewish reckoning, a part of a day counts for a day. You know, in other words, we, and we can still sometimes do this in our modern reckoning, where instead of talking... You talk, have to do that for the Thursday. You do, yeah, exactly. Because he was put in the tomb because their Jewish day started at, what, 6 p.m.? Yeah, sundown. Yep. Sundown or... or if yep. you put a time on it, it's 6. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he spent part of Thursday, afternoon Thursday, mm-hmm. Friday and Saturday. Yep. Rose Sunday morning. Yep. Early before, while it was still dark, the text, yeah, the scripture says, on Sunday morning he rises. So then he was in the tomb Friday night, which was at, started at six. Mm-hmm. And then Saturday. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I'm just telling you, if you want a really good brain cramp, then, <laughs> because I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with this, and I'm with you, because we, because in our reckoning, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, we got to, because you got to start thinking like a Jew, right? And you got to start thinking, okay, their day starts, right, in the evening, and, it's, and, and then you got to try and, you know, reconcile the calendars. But either way, even if it's a Thursday or a Friday, you still have to hold that idea that it's a partial day. You know, in other words, there's... When Jesus made that statement, right, three days, three nights, then it's, uh, he, he probably didn't mean what we do in modern Western society of, you know, X amount of hours, you know, exactly. Um, in other words, he's probably not talking about a 36-hour period, right? In other words, there, and there's, there's some debate on that, but because if you look at the, the biblical idiom, I'm sorry, not 36 hours. I said 30. Thank you, 72. I was thinking 30. (laughs) I'm a Bible teacher, not a math teacher. Okay. (laughs) So thank you, 72 hours. So, but if you look at that in biblical idiom, it it does make sense because you have, and you can look this up. there's There's like a dozen times it shows up in the Bible in narrative accounts where it says on the third day, on the third day, and then it still refers to three days. Um, in other words, this is, it was pretty common Jewish reckoning, if that makes sense, to, to use half a day and count it as a day, and to talk about three days as the third day on the third day. So that's how the Friday people get around it, for what it's worth. But but it's still, you know, I'm not I'm not totally convinced. But yeah. So is this the, the calendar starting over at Passover for the Israelites? Is that the inspiration for the calendar starting over? 
favor with Christ Giants, where we have... <clears throat> that's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I don't know that for sure because my, I would have to double check on that. I, my gut reaction is I'm not sure if this is the inspiration or not because, you know, that when, when the calendar was reset, you know, it was in the Middle Ages and, you know, it was, it was, a, very, it was a very Christian, you know, reckoning. Yeah, but I don't know because, you know, like because many of those early days of Christianity, they, they were doing a lot to try and distinguish and distance themselves from the Jews. You know, in, in other words, I don't know if they looked to this as the precedent for doing that. I, I have no idea. Yeah, no, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I think from our perspective, whether or not that was the motive of the guy who changed the calendar, from our perspective, it makes good sense. Divinely, it makes sense, right? As we see a, a reorienting of our calendar, right? And they're trying to do it again. Don't let them do it, right? You know, band, let's band together, right? Resist with me. It's still B.C., before Christ, and A.D. And O Domini is Latin for the year of our Lord. But, right, now they're trying to do B.C.E., before Common Era, right? And then Common Era, C.E. Just don't let them do it, okay? I know, I know, but all the modern secularist agenda people are trying to rewrite the calendar. But the point is, yeah, I, I think there's, you know, from our perspective, there's a parallel there, is we see an altering of the calendar to mark this. Exactly. An end of time and a beginning of time. Exactly. Which is exactly the point of this, is God says, all right, I'm going to do something so monumental, I want you to shift your entire calendar to remember this day. And to know that this is what I did. Exactly, exactly. It was the same event in a way. Amen. This Passover was was in many ways just a foretaste and a foreshadowing. It was obviously a real historic event, but it was a foreshadowing of the greater deliverance to come. Absolutely. Amen. All right. So one more thought on the timing of Passover, then we'll get off it. Is uh, and this is, again, debated. Some scholars have pointed this out. Some scholars claim that the 14th of Nisan, which was Passover for the Jews, was also commemorated, commemorated later by the Egyptians. Uh, but the use of their term is Friday the 13th, which is considered from here forward unlucky. Uh, in other words, there's some scholars that make that claim, and there's some scholars that combat that claim because it seems to have some dubious you know, lack of evidence, but it's like there's, uh, it's an interesting possibility. Some claim, because again, in Egyptian reckoning, their day, right, when it was the 14th for the Jews, it was the 13th for the Egyptians. So the 14th of Nisan for the Jews is Friday the 13th for the Egyptians, right? And it was bad for them. So if, so pagan culture views this as a very unlucky day, right? <laughs> Isn't that interesting, Right. Uh, because that, that tradition goes back a long ways. Uh, but the, there's a suggestion that it may originate right here. Um, but nonetheless, the timing of the Passover is important. And, and again, we could get, really get lost in the gospel narratives, kind of you know, debating the Friday, uh, Thursday thing. But I, I think my, for what it's worth, and, and I have some past lectures that try to articulate that, um, for what it's worth, I think this, this is one of the reasons, is that 10th and 14th day. I think that, that parallels very nicely with the uh, life of Christ. But 
we have a few minutes to at least begin our discussion of the next point, namely the elements of Passover. All right, so any other questions on the timing of Passover? Questions, observations about that before we talk about the elements of Passover? No, you're all just like, please just move on. Okay, all right, so elements of Passover, three of which are pointed out in our text, all right? We'll talk through these uh, as much as time will allow tonight, and then we'll probably have to pick it up here next week. But our text highlights that the Passover was to be celebrated with three primary elements. Look at verse 8 again, all right? It says, they shall eat the flesh, that is the flesh of the lamb, the meat of the lamb, in that night roasted with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. In other words, there's three elements that God ordains for the, uh, the keeping of Passover. So let's just look at these one at a time. Now again, uh, all of these elements were prepared in haste, and they were eaten while being dressed, uh, according to verse 11, right? They would have their loins girded, sandals on, staff in their hand, and the whole idea, and that's, again, the whole point, one of the points of unleavened bread, is that they were to do it quickly, they were make bread quickly, not allowing it the traditional time to rise. And so the idea is these various elements were to be prepared in haste, which is also, again, I think why they had to roast the lamb. Um, but nonetheless, they were to prepare these elements in haste, eat while being dressed up, sandals worn, etc. And they were to be ready to go in order to indicate their faith and expectation that Yahweh would indeed fulfill his promise. In other words, this initial Passover, now later Passovers, there's, traditionally that's how, you, you know, that's how you celebrate Passover, is that you still do this. But this, again, it, it's to commemorate the posture that they were to have at the first Passover. Because God is saying, as soon as I keep this, you know, or, or level the plague and keep my promise and, and, and slay the firstborn, then you will be thrust out of Egypt. Like, they are going to push you out so fast that you better be packed already, right? That's the idea, is pack your bags, right? Hold your staff, put your jacket on, right? And get ready because you're going to be thrust out of Egypt. And so the, the, the elements of Passover were all to be prepared in a, in a way that takes very little time, right? Very little preparation. That's the idea, all right? So first, you have the bitter herbs. Bitter herbs, according to... Uh, you know, Hebrew tradition is to be a reminder of the bitter bondage that they, uh, that they had in Egypt. In fact, later in Numbers, let me just read those passages briefly. In Numbers chapter 11 and chapter 14, the children of Israel were already beginning to forget the bitterness that they experienced in Egypt. All right, so Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Let me just read this briefly. It says, when the people... Uh, and then the people complained, or excuse me, and when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched, and they called the name of the place Tabera, or Tabera, because the fire of the Lord was burned among them. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember, right? Here's the classic. We remember, verse 5, the fish that we had, uh, that we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes, right? And of course, they, he goes on to describe the manna, but they're really upset about it. All right, same thing happens in chapter 14. All right, so this is when they're sick of the manna, and so they start remembering the wonderful food that they had back in Egypt. 
But Numbers 14, same thing happens later. This time, they're at the brink of entering the promised land. It's Kadesh Barnea, right? They send the 12 spies. 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, and 2 were good. Remember that song? An old Sunday school song. But the idea is they come back, they make a report that, hey, there's many people right in the land, big big dudes, giants, walled cities, walled up to heaven, they say. They say, we can't take it. And so they are discouraged, and the people get upset uh, that they're, you know, they march through the wilderness. Now they're at the brink of the promised land, but they can't go in. It's too hard. So they kind of throw a bit of, of, of a pity party, right? And uh, so, and then and they remember once again. They reminisce on how good it was in Egypt, and they 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 are weeping at the fact that man, we should have just, you know, died in Egypt or died in the wilderness, right? In other words, they're they're just frustrated at this turn of events. So the point is. These are just two events, and, and there's more, but these are you know, a couple of events in the book of Numbers in the wilderness time period that reminded, or that we see, where the children of Israel were remembering the good times in Egypt, and they were forgetting the bitterness in Egypt. And so according to you know, Hebrew tradition from here forward, one of the purposes of the bitter herb, and there's some debate on what that herb was, right? It doesn't really say bitter herb. Right? I mean, it's kind of like it, there's a number of herbs that could have been used, right? Modern, uh, you know, what's that? Arugula. Yeah, arugula. Ginger. Horseradish is used, right? Yeah, I use horseradish with my kids, and they just, oh, man, you should see their faces. It's great. Isn't it great? Horseradish. I'm telling you, it's branded upon their memories, right? And I'm telling you, it works like a charm. I'm just saying, because... What's that? Yeah, it's gross, isn't it? And I'm telling you, and, and that my kids never forget it, right? Because when it's time, I'm like, guys, what does this stand for? Oh, the bitterness of sin, right? That's, I mean, they just, they know it right off the bat. <laughs> and it's, wow, what a memory aid, <laughs> right? But that's the whole point. That's why God designed it that way. Is he says, I want them to remember the bitterness in Egypt, right? That's the whole idea. Is, 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 is like Numbers 11, Numbers 14, these other passages illustrate is we are all prone to do that. We're prone to forget, right? We, we, we forget sin. We forget, you know, how bad it was, what we were delivered from, and we're, we're allured to go back. And, and we forget the bondage. We forget the turmoil, et cetera. And so it's, there's just a, there's, there's a, a beautiful, you know, divine intention, I think, in that to just remem- help them remember yearly when they commemorate Passover, eat that bitter herb. It is unpleasant, it is supposed to be unpleasant. It's supposed to make you pucker, and, and you don't want to do it, right? And the whole idea is you do it to remember the bitterness in Egypt, right? So, so that's, I think, uh, the, the first element. Second element that is described is unleavened bread, all right? Now, again, I already pointed this out, but verse 11 highlights that one of the purposes of this is that it, it's to be made in haste. Making unleavened bread is, is really a matter of just a few minutes, uh, versus ours. All right, my wife, uh, oh man, Lord love her, she makes homemade bread. It's amazing, right? And um, But it's an all-day process. She starts it in the morning, right? Mixes the dough, got to let it rise, right? I mean, it's like it's, it's hours before that bread is ready, and it's torture while it's in the oven, you know what I'm saying? Because you're smelling it, and it's a wonderful thing. But and then the kids would just flock around, and you know, and then it's like it's gone, you know, like they just devour it so quickly. But 
the point is unleavened bread can be made in a, in a mere few minutes. It, that's the point. It's a symbol of, again, faith in the promise that God says, you be ready. Don't take long. You're not going to have hours to prepare this meal. Like you are going to have just a few minutes because I'm going to make sure that this is going to happen quickly. That when, you know, God, again, brings the, the angel of death through the land, then they're going to thrust you out. So again, that's probably the, the primary purpose of the unleavened bread in the original Passover. However, later, as you work your way through uh, biblical history as well as uh, Hebrew tradition, then there's a, a symbolism that begins to surround yeast as an agent of corruption. And therefore, unleavened bread then began to symbolize simplicity and purity, if that makes sense, right? We see this a couple of times in the New Testament. Jesus refers to, right, uh, the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, Paul will, will use this same analogy, talking about church discipline in First uh, Corinthians 5, just that as we need to purge the leaven, he says, so too we need to remove the ungodly from the midst of the, of the church. And he's talking about church discipline. So again, the, the, the idea uh, kind of morphs over time to include that. And so, and, and so that, that becomes kind of incorporated with the Passover ritual uh, throughout, you know, later and over time. But then the third element, which is given the most space, the most ink, is the, the lamb. Now first, verse 5 highlights that the lamb is to be uh, you know, a domesticated animal. It's ceremonially clean animal from the flocks of lambs or goats, it says. It can be lamb or goat, and it was to be without blemish. In other words, this is uh, the, the details that verse 5 gives to us. But then, you know, there's, there's obviously some significance in those elements. First, it's pointed out by many that domestication seems to be important. In other words, uh, it's suggested that the use of a domesticated animal is perhaps to, meant to model an innocent and willing substitute, which gives its life for the purification and protection of the household. Right? In other words, rather than, than wrestling a bull right, into this, you're to take a, a, a wee little lamb, right? <laughs> is kind of the idea. So some point out significance in that. Um, it's also important, I think the domestication side is also important in that the animal itself was not a carnivore. It did not feed on flesh and death to sustain its own life. This is pointed out by most uh, scholars as significant because this is probably the dividing line between clean and unclean animals when you get to the book of Leviticus, right? Clean and unclean animals, there's, there's a debate on that. What makes one clean versus unclean? Is that a totally arbitrary categorization process, right? Like why, is, why are some animals clean and others considered unclean. Well, it's not a, a, you know, a perfect uh, separation. In other words, the horse is considered unclean, but the horse isn't really a carnivore. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, so, so there seems to be some exceptions to the rule. Um, but everyone, most scholars see a correlation there that those that are unclean are those that feed on death. Either they're scavengers, so they eat dead carcasses, or they are carnivores, they kill and eat. Some suggest like the horse, you know, was an implement of war, so it was associated with death. Okay, maybe. Um, but the idea is that there, that seems to be at least the biggest observation that separates between clean and unclean animals. And the reason for that is, very, is there's a ceremonial significance to that. 
is because, you recall, we talked about this briefly in our study of the book of Hebrews, but you remember when you approach God in the, the tabernacle temple, there were, there were stages to the process, right? Um, but being clean, ceremonially clean, was part, was necessary before you could even approach the temple. And the idea is that you were separating from all the things that defiled you. And those pictures of defilement, right, such as death, uh, carnivores or scavenger birds or things like that, um, or death itself, right? The highest form of uncleanness is if you touched a dead body, right? You were unclean seven days. It was a very stringent uh, and number chapter 19 describes the stringent laws required. You know, right, so that's the ashes of a red heifer, if you're familiar with that. Right, all of the, uh, this pretty elaborate ceremony to, cl- to become clean from touching a dead body. So the idea is that death is really the height of uncleanness. And the reason for that seems to be ceremonial and theological, is that death is, is an invader into God's good creation. Right? That's the idea, is that in the, in the beginning, God created you know, all things in perfection. And death was the result of sin. It wasn't part of God's original creation. So death is a symbol for what is wrong with the world, right? It's, it's what's wrong with the world and alienation from God. And so that then becomes what we're, you know, we're, we're to be separated from uh, when it comes to the, you know, the, the ceremonial system. So that's probably one of the, the key factors behind the domestication of the animal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, no, not in this case. Yeah, in fact, it's, it's because, well, and the touching the dead body is, is uh, it's, there, there's a caveat on that. So the, the slaughter of a sacrifice isn't considered touching of a dead body because it was alive and you're catching the blood, if that makes sense. It's a, it's a body or a corpse that has been dead. For, a, for a, it's a period of time, if that makes sense. It's not clear on the timing, but it's not, the, the act of a sacrifice isn't considered the same. Yeah. Good question, though. Um, so, again, but then, so the animals to be domesticated, but also to be ceremonially clean, without spot or blemish, right? If you want to know what that is or what that means, right, read Leviticus 22, right? It says there can't be, you know, a spot or any blemish, meaning it says if it was, has a tear or an imperfection or blind in one eye, a different color eye, right? It goes through a number of different things uh, in, there in Leviticus 22 to describe what a blemish would be. But again, this is another way of treating this occasion as holy, is that you're finding the absolute best animal that you have, right? It's not God gets your leftovers, right? Like Malachi makes a big deal. Remember prophet Malachi? That in, that in their day, they were making sacrifices, but they were not giving their best to God, right? He says they were given the leftovers. The, the animal that they didn't want, that's the one that God got. And Malachi, the prophet, calls him out on it. And he says, you know, don't do this, right? This is, you're not, he says, would you offer that to your governor, right? And he's talking about paying the, you know, the tribute to your political ruler. He says, your governor wouldn't accept that. He says, so why do you think God wants that? He says, you know, in other words, it's a, it's a way of treating this occasion as holy. Again, um, the animal was to be male. It's, it makes that explicit in the text, probably, this serves as uh, just a, a normal practical purpose. Stuart, for instance, the commentator points out that in animal husbandry, if uh, 
uh, in animal husbandry of meat stock, all but a few breeding males were culled and eaten. But virtually all the females were kept for breeding and milking. Few people may realize that, for example, when they eat chicken, they're usually eating neutered rooster. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I'm just saying. But uh, it therefore makes sense that the Passover animal would be male. In other words, there's, I think, Stuart rightly points out that there's probably a practical purpose behind this. But then, of course, I think there's also, when it comes to, at at least later, the, the type, the typology that is laid down here also becomes significant because the Messiah who would offer himself Right, and in our place would, of course, also be a male. That's the Lord Jesus. So I think there's, there's n- numerous points of, of, of importance there. So let's talk about one more point, and then we'll, I'll have to wrap it up for tonight. But <clears throat> let's talk about the roasting real quick, and then we'll have to save the blood for later, right? because the blood discussion just gets us into a whole, another whole level of, of importance and significance that we, we don't have the time to talk about because you know, I'm out of time tonight. But it's going to correlate really well because we're in our, in our Sunday morning sessions. We're in Ephesians 2, verse 11, starting this Sunday. And uh, it talks about how we are brought nigh by the blood of Christ. So there's a lot of blood lingo uh, in the New Testament. It's really important, but it's building upon much of the teaching that we'll see here. But the, the text also tells us that the lamb is to be roasted. Now, again, I think this, this has a couple of different purposes. The roasting whole served the purpose of, of no bones being broken, right, in order to fit into the pot. Uh, in other words, the fire, you know, to fire the, the animal instead of, to roast it over the fire instead of smashing it into a pot and boiling it, right? It says don't boil it. It's not to be boiled. One of the purposes might be, first, just the idea of breaking the bone, right, because that, that's going to come up later in the text. Um, but also, fire is often used as a symbol for God uh, and his wrath, and we see that consistently through the scripture. So that makes sense to, to the, the wrath of God or the fire being an image of that is, is the way that the lamb is to be cooked. But then, of course, this was also, uh, it seems to be an innovation because in ancient Near Eastern uh, spring rituals of pagans, it included eating raw or half-cooked sacrifices. We see that referenced in Second uh, Chronicles 35, for instance. In other words, roasting it probably has the purpose of once again. There's a lot of laws like that, like that by the way. If you remember, that was a while back. <clears throat> Not everyone was there for that. But when I taught through uh, Deuteronomy, there's a lot of laws like that where there's a law that, it, that God purposefully makes different than the Canaanites around them. In other words, Israel, do it differently. Don't do it like, don't look like your neighbors, right, the, the Canaanite peoples. In other words, this might be an example of that. But then, of course, I already pointed this out, but as in the case of unleavened bread, the roasting of the lamb was the fastest and simplest way to prepare the meat, right? So again, it required no setup or washing the pots or other utensils, right, or drawing water. It was quick, fast, efficient. So again, it plays into that idea. Now, next time, the most important aspect of the preparation process, we didn't have time to get to tonight, and that is the blood, right? In other words, there's a very specific set of instructions. It's easier to catch the blood, Right? And then he, he, he describes how they're to place the blood over the doorpost and the lintel on the doorpost. And then, of course, he walks through the purpose of that. So there's lots of symbolism in that, that are re- that's really important for us to understand. And like I said, I'm out of time, so we can't get into that tonight. But that's where we'll pick it up next week, is the idea of you know, the importance of the blood. All right? And if you want a refresher on this, because um, we, we'll, 
we'll talk about it to an extent, but if you want to go deeper, I'd recommend there's like two or three maybe sessions that we gave to this idea in our Hebrews class, right? We talked about the, the power of the blood, right? The purity of the blood. Uh, we talked about why blood is so significant in, in biblical ritual and why it's so significant when it comes to, you know, the New Testament, death of Christ. It's theologically important as well. So we'll get into some of that next week, all right? Thoughts, questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. Then we'll come up there. They, um, leave the guts inside? Is that not unhealthy? Yeah. No, apparently not. That's right. That's verse nine. And again, it's speed. It's it's all about the speed, right? That's again. That's I think that's the big common denominator, if that if you will. Sure. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good question. Yeah, the word in is is verse nine. Yep, it says his head, he says roast it in the fire, his head with his legs with the entrails thereof. Yeah. Yeah, it starts bloating, etc. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a pleasant image. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, I'd have to do a little more reading on that, but I think I think that's what. Is I mean, that's what verse nine is saying. So. Is it possible that they threw guts <clears throat> in the fire with the lamb, and they had gutted the lamb first? You can do that without. Uh, that's that's an interesting thought because it doesn't say, it doesn't specify that here, but it does specify it that way in Leviticus. So, in other words, if you were to read Leviticus then this might be a shorthand way of just summarizing in one verse what is later implied or implying what's later spelled out in Leviticus 1 where it actually talks about the gutting process, etc. That's a good question. That, that might be part of it. But then it would just in, require per, burning all of these elements. Yeah. In other words, yeah, it's it the whole... It smell good, but at least you're not eating it, you know. Right. No, that's a good thought. That's a great thought. I'll have to check that out. That's a good question. Yes, sir, and then we'll, we've got a couple more. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. Yep, so that's a, a stipulation. It'll, it'll show up uh, in, and I, it actually, it wasn't in our passage, was it? It doesn't show up until the next section, verse 21 and following, I think, where the, it's, it describes that no bones broken. And then in the New Testament, John, the apostle, makes that correlation for us because he, he's the eyewitness at the foot of the cross. And you have, do you remember the three hanging there, Jesus and the two thieves? Exactly. They broke the bones of the other two, right, the legs, to, to make them die faster. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So they didn't break a bone. And then John makes the correlation to the Passover. That's exactly right. Yes, ma'am? You have a thought? I just love the symbolism and the ceremonialism of the whole thing and how it you know, plays in later and stuff. But I also really, really love the practical side of it, like, God is feeding his people. Their bellies are going full. They're going into this horrible journey where they're going to be chased, you know, by the Egyptians and stuff. And, and he's sending them out full, prepared, ready to go. He provides, always provides. That's really good. Always. 
That's a really good observation. Yep. He's taken care. Right? In fact, and I mean, I, that's another whole thing we'll get in chapter 13. But he even picks their route based upon, you know, like in other words, the forethought and God's care as a gentle shepherd, right, leading his people is, is really profound. That's, that's really good. That's really good. Warren. <clears throat> the Jewish rabbis and teachers and so on interpret this passage. How do they do it? Verse nine? Yeah. That's what I have to check on. That's a great question. I'd have to double check that. Because it might give an insight to culture and that's a good one. I'll try and check on that and come back next week with a better answer. Because it might be a shorthand of Leviticus one or, you know, but yeah, that would be a good question. Is see how the Jewish rabbis, you know, read that. Tim, do you have something? Then you have something. Okay, Tim. I was thinking about the when you said it was the idea of Adam said it's like a horse. I mean I can't imagine eating a horse or going to You'd have to get a lot of families together for that. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. Oh, <laughs> all right, Tim. What would we do without you? Good one, man. Good one. <laughs> yeah, all right, man. I'm gonna put that in my notes. Now <laughs> we're gonna publish that. No. <clears throat> what's your What's your thought? No, that's a great question. Because and I and it doesn't really. It just says in verse five, a male of the first year. So I mean, it's it could probably any of those options would probably be. Right. Are you saying I got a lot of kids? No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they can be pretty good size. Yeah, and that, and that's a good question because I mean, uh, uh, and again, be interesting how the rabbis interpret it. But it's the text only says first year, so I think anything within that first year would be. Can I use the word kosher? <laughs> right, kosher. Sorry, Victor. What do you got? Yes. Until they're about six months. <clears throat> ah, that's interesting. I don't know. Maybe that's relevant. I don't know. But when growing up, that was kind of Right. Yeah, we were talking about that a little bit earlier this morning, right? Because you were born in Uzbekistan. So it's like they come from that same area. That's an interesting thought. Is that culturally it had to be at least six months old? That's interesting. That would still fall within the, the yearling. Right 
That's cool. That was the rule of thumb. That was their rule of thumb. That's helpful. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You got your eye on one. <laughs> that's awesome. The best ones are still the little ones that are just under a year. Sure, the best tasting ones. It doesn't get stiff and stringy. Yeah, all right. <laughs> that's good. That's interesting. That's interesting. I'm learning a lot about lamb. <laughs> I'm loving it. Well, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you would know, right, with the sheep herder husband. But also being in that first year, they don't really have any kind of service as far as training and all that. That's right. So, again, the practical purpose that Stuart points out. That's good. That's a good point. That's good. That's good. That's a great point. Amen. Boy, y'all are got great insights. Do, All right. I don't know about that. I'm not sure. We only Okay. I don't know. But then they also, they used to um, cut all their lambs, you know, as soon as they could. Okay. So they didn't develop yeah. Yeah. See, because that that might be a blemish. So I would actually. I mean, let, let's let's chase that down quick, and then we'll be done. We're we're definitely out of time. Doggone it! Don't you hate that? Yeah. Because I was going to say I that would probably violate the Leviticus twenty-two that passage. That's what I was just going to look at. He says, "Whatsoever has has a blemish, shall you not offer, for it should not be acceptable for you." And whosoever offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to accomplish his vow, free will offering, must have no blemish therein. Blind or broken, maimed or having uh, a wen or scurvy, scabbed, you shall not offer these to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire, either bullock or lamb, anything superfluous or lacking in its parts. You may not offer. Yeah. So lacking in its parts. I think that's pretty clear, right? <laughs> Should we take a poll real quick what that means? <laughs> Write that down. Write that down, someone. Brilliance right there. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. Maybe the bath would work. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. All right. Well, we're out of time for tonight. Let's close her down. We'll, we'll close in prayer. And then next time we'll pick it up here, talk specifically about the blood part of the ritual. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time tonight. Thank you, Lord, as we just begin to introduce ourselves and grapple with the intricacies of what you instituted.
for Passover. Lord, we are just in awe regarding, Lord, the purpose behind this. Lord, the, the specifics that you granted. The uh, Lord, as was mentioned, just the, the significance, the ceremonialism that all has significance. Lord, and then, Lord, not only the practical nature that we see in this first Passover, but then how it is paralleled and how it foreshadows the, the ultimate Passover uh, of Christ. Lord, we're, we're just enthralled by this. We pray that you would help us to better understand it, Lord, so that we can all the more appreciate uh, the personal work of Christ who gave himself as our Passover lamb. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to understand that and to learn to love you more as a result of it. So we commit to you uh, this study, and we just continue to ask for your grace in and through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.